Hey, bookworms. Welcome to the Picky Bookworm Podcast. I am so glad you are here. I am the Picky Bookworm, and I love bringing recognition to indie and self-published books through book reviews, proofreading, and podcasting. Every Saturday, I get to talk to a member of the writing community, from book bloggers to authors and even other podcasters like myself. I'll include a link to my website where you can leave a comment with your thoughts on the show or questions for the author that I may not have gotten to. You can also find information on how to sponsor this podcast. Ready? Grab your tea, wine, or laundry, and let's get to it. Hey, everybody. I am here today with Daniel Jones. I am so excited to have him back on the show. Um, If you guys remember a few weeks ago, we tried to record and had a bunch of tech issues, um, but we only had minor ones today. So I'm super excited about that. I'm super excited to have him back on the show. And we are going to talk books. We're going to talk life. We're going to talk all kinds of things. So grab your tea, grab your wine, grab your laundry, Caroline. We're going to get started. Daniel, what's up? I'll tell you, it has been a crazy week on this end. <laughs> I I can understand that. I really like your shirt, by the way. Um, for for the listeners, um, I whenever I record with a guest, uh, we're usually on video chat, and um, Daniel is wearing a Hydra's Wake shirt, which is super exciting. I can see your your poster in the background. Yep. Um. So real quick, um, I, I feel like since you and I chatted already that, um, I'm going to probably forget some of the questions that I wanted to ask you. Um, and I, I'm going to have probably some pretty serious deja vu a couple (laughs) of times, but real quick, um, tell the listeners just a little bit about yourself and about, um, just how you got started writing, what kind of things inspire you, and we'll go from there. All right. So, hey, everyone. My name is Daniel Jones. I am an author who writes action thrillers in the creature feature niche. I've got one book out right now, and I've got another one coming right around the corner. Hydra's Awake is a sci-fi steampunk adventure that follows a dirigible pilot who has crash landed in a dangerous forest that is occupied by a four-headed hydra and we're going to spend most of today's show all about that it's going to be fun it's going to be exciting and we'll go into the next book a little bit hydra tower which is a very different story altogether and you guys are going to have a lot of fun with it but it still features a high dress. So, you know, that's, yep. that's always fun. So what, when you decided to write your Hydra's wake, what made you want to write it with a Hydra? Um, you know, why didn't Godzilla show up in your book or. <laughs> <laughs> so Hydra's are underutilized. They're amazing creatures. There are a lot of amazing creatures in mythology that are underutilized. And it may just be because everybody thinks, oh, I need a big fantasy creature, dragon automatically. So it's like, okay, that took no thought. Why not think a little further? 
Hydras are just an animal that can fill the void and feel original. They're great for that. So that uh, is really where it all started when I was playing Magic the Gathering on a Friday night one day. Um, I was running a Hydra deck, and my opponent and I dropped out of the event just to talk about why Hydras are so underutilized in literature and things of that nature. And that really is what got it going. So, Okay. Um, yeah, I um, I think the last time we talked, um, I had mentioned that Hydra was one of my favorite um, mythological characters as well. And, you know, one of my um, favorite parts, <clears throat> excuse me, I am fighting a little bit of a cold today, you guys. I'm so sorry if you hear me cough or sneeze. I'm so, so sorry. Um, but one of my favorite um, scenes in a movie with a Hydra is the one from the first uh, Percy Jackson movie. And, you know, before y'all come at me. I will say I liked the movie. Now, I have read the books, read all the books. I loved the books. I am looking forward to the Disney Plus TV show coming. I do not think that the movies matched what the book should have been. I, I don't. But it was still a fun movie. So, yeah. So, before y'all come at me, that is my opinion. It's totally valid. Um and I, I will, I will die on the hill that it was a good movie. Um, but I am very much looking forward to the the Disney Plus TV show because um, I would, I would love to see what what they're able to do with it um, when they try to make it a little closer to the book. Um, but in the Lightning Thief, when they're fighting the Hydra, it's a seven headed. Hydra. And it's just really cool looking. And, you know, so, and the, the whole, you know, you cut one head off and two grow in its place is, you know, that's just a really nifty addition to, to a mythological character. And, you know, we actually get to see a little bit of that in Hydra Tower, we don't, we don't see, <clears throat> excuse me, we don't see as much in Hydra's wake because they don't get really close enough to the Hydra um, to start making it lose heads. Yeah, the size of the Hydra in Hydra's wake makes that just a little bit of a challenge. <laughs> just a little bit. So, um one of the things that you know i i had the the honor of getting to um to work on this um hydra's wake as an editor and one of the things that fascinated me was what the hydra's wake actually is you know when when i'm editing a book or when i'm proofreading a book i tend to not know anything about the story. I, I like going into it completely blind mm -hmm. and, you know, I've had some other really good experiences with uh, books by doing that and just going in completely blind. I have no clue what's going on. And 
Um, so what, what made you think of Hydra's Wake being what it is and what, how closely can you describe it without ruining too much of the story? <laughs> so Hydra's Wake was developed as really a need for the Hydra itself. I mean, you look at the book cover of this thing, its heads are the size of the dirigible in the cover art itself. So this animal is absolutely massive. And you need a way to be able to hunt in order to keep up that size. And something that big is, without some sort of help, not going to be able to sneak up on anything to eat. So no. The- <laughs> no, just taking a step is yeah. <laughs> earthquake, earthquake. Yep. So the Hydra's Wake was developed as really taking notes from the natural world and the real animal kingdom of here are some ideas that could evolve into a way to provide it the ability to sustain itself. So the Hydra's Wake is a hallucinogen that it emits from its body. The hallucinogen disorients its prey and gives the Hydra the opportunity to just walk right up and eat. In humans, this wake causes paranormal and transdimensional effects. So... What I like about the ability is that I can talk all about the ability itself and not give away too much of the story because the story (laughs) is a reaction to this whole phenomenon that's going on. Right. So once you fall, once you breathe in this hallucinogen, um, the first thing that happens is a transdimensional link forms between you and the Hydra. So if you run away from the Hydra too far, you essentially fall into a coma if you leave its proximity. Or if it walks away from you, you fall into a coma. So you can't stray too far from it unless you just want to fall into a never-waking coma. You live, but you don't. (laughs) So one one of the things that I thought was really interesting, too, was... You brought in um, another, um, I want to say two creatures, because the the way that the world is that you've built, um, you know, you have the world of shell, and you have the, the planet shell, and then you have the planet, oh, can't remember the name of it, um, heart, yes. Um, so you have, you have two planets, and they are close enough together they have somehow created this like weird little orbit where part of the planets actually share an atmosphere and so you can travel between the the two planets and heart is where most of the people live most of the humans and then shell is um used as partially like a, uh, a research colony, um, partially 
um, a mining colony and, you know, just various other things, but it's populated by really big freaking creatures. <laughs> yes. So you've got the Hydra and you have, um, I think it's a, a bear, like a, a big, huge. Oh, the harpy bear. Yes. Yes. And then what is the third one? Cause I think there were three, right? So the third one that really gets prominent is a shadow figure, which actually is part of the Hydra. It's a manifestation of the Hydra in that other dimension that it creates. So while the victims are going from our dimension to the Hydra's controlled dimension, um, they get to deal with a much more dangerous version of the Hydra that can do a whole lot more is our size if it wants to be or bigger if it wants to be. Basically, it owns the dimension and it can do whatever the hell it wants. And it does so (laughs) in a phenomenal way. So while everybody is under the effect and things are vanishing, things are disappearing, or they're not able to touch what they can see, they're also having to deal with the Hydra using a sort of an alternate ego to further complicate things and make it more difficult to stay on one's A-game and survive. So you, so you have two main characters along with the antagonist. And Rogue Whip... Um, is our protagonist. He's our main character. And he meets, do you know, it's been way too long since I've read this book. Um, (laughs) But he meets a a young woman who had been kidnapped by the antagonist. And I gotta say, you did a really good job with the antagonist. Um, (laughs) Albert, um, God bless it. Can't remember his last name. Um, but his, his first name is Albert and he is absolutely despicable. He is like psychopath and sociopath all rolled into one. Um, and he is, I mean, he is just absolutely despicable human being. How, how did you go about creating him and why did you want him to be just so awful? So Albert is really a classic formula antagonist. One of the things that I knew I would need to do going into this project just for the tone of the way the story would be is to set up a classic good versus evil kind of tone within the story itself and we get rogue whip who is a completely ordinary normal person who has no special skills no special abilities who's been suddenly thrown into this very intense very extreme survival situation in contrast to that we have lord albert Richtoff, who is basically the most dangerous person in their world at that point. He is in, he's basically a person who got 
famous and rich by dark information, torturing people. Entire continents, countries, kings go to him for when they need to get information that isn't otherwise accessible or make things happen. Now, when Rogue is shot down over this forest, um, he thinks he crash lands there. But the reality is he was shot down because he has the unfortunate luck of sharing the name of a spy who decided to screw with Albert's operations. So we don't get to see that bit too much, but we do end up seeing everything that happens when Albert gets it wrong. Yeah. So they're all in this mining camp in the Hydra's territory, getting the Hydra's attention and it just goes from, okay, we've got a super bad guy just cleaning up his business to, oh, there's a whole bunch of people who just are trying to survive now. And that's really what makes it fun. Albert being so despicable, so single-minded evil, and he portrays it in such a way to where he's completely comfortable with it. He's bad. He knows he's bad. He doesn't care. That's his lifestyle. He got rich off of it. It's a success for him. So and it, it helps that he's just a little bit insane. Yes, just just a, just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he is a very competent villain, and unfortunately for him, under the Hydra's wake, we get to see him sort of deteriorate throughout the course of events. Um, He's used to having all of the control, and now he has next to none. And he's in a situation where he knows he can't escape. So it's it's quite the dynamic. It's a lot of fun. And while that sets up the story right there, um, it's exciting to see just how it goes down. This story isn't so much about the secrets that it holds so much as watching the twists and the turns. It's like being on a roller coaster. You see the whole thing going up that lift hill, but once you're at the lift hill, you know, you're in for one wild ride. So yeah. Yeah. I, (laughs) I have to agree. It's definitely a wild ride. Um, one of the, um, interesting parts and I'm I'm not going to give any context to this um, to avoid any potential spoilers but one of my favorite parts about it was you actually managed to fit in zombies how like what made you what made you want to do that and how how were you able to fit them in Seem so seamlessly. So, this was an interesting call that I made. It, I had to find a way to convey what happens to you when you phase completely into the other dimension that the Hydra controls. So, once that happens, you basically become a piece of the Hydra's vast arsenal of 
tricks up its sleeve. And when used, um, they take many forms, but the most prominent and effective the Hydra has learned is to create these goopy, humanoid-looking things out of the victims that the Hydra has. And while it's a trans-dimensional puppet of the Hydra, the outward appearance, if you were looking at it for the very first time, we don't have a word for, oh, that's a trans-dimensional puppet of the Hydra. Um, to us, that's going to, we're going to call it like we see it. That's a zombie. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you did a really good job just you know kind of just fitting them into the story because i mean they they fit and they fit well and it just you know it just kind of adds to the the creature feature feel that you wanted the book to have you know it's this is the kind of you know this one and and hydra tower as well they're the kind of books that you would expect a, um, I, and please don't take this as an insult, but you would expect to see like those like B type TV movies, you oh, know, yeah. and that people don't, they don't expect to like it because they're like, well, it's a B movie. And then they start watching it and they're like, holy crap, <laughs> <laughs> this is like super fun. And so it's, you know, the way that Hydra's Wake starts it, you know, it starts a little slow and it starts, you know, with, you know, Rogue Whip leaving Heart to go to Shell and um, he's making a delivery. I mean, he's, he's basically a delivery driver. Um, and he happens to drive a dirigible that is hardy enough that it can make it between the atmospheres of, of heart and shell. Yep. And so, you know, it, it starts off a little quiet, semi, you know, close to how a B movie would start. And then once that action starts and once that Hydra starts doing its thing and once the zombies show up and once you know they start hallucinating it, it the action really picks up and it's you know you would expect if you're visualizing in your head it as a movie it kind of has a, a grainy 80s type feel to it does that does that make sense you're not insulted <laughs> No, it's all good. Um, so, yeah, the whole aspect of Hydra's Wake was to basically be a revival of creature features for literature. I mean, that's where it all started. You got Bram Stoker's Dracula, um, Frankenstein's Monster, and The Mummy all started as novels way, way back in the day. And they did eventually become movies, and they transitioned so well that the genre of creature feature just became a film genre. So Hydra's Wake includes a lot of homage to the history of the creature feature as a whole. 
I mean, the size of the Hydra in it is homage to the most famous monster of them all right now, Godzilla. So <clears throat> you got the kaiju aspect down pat. And then, of course, you've got the more natural animals um, that show up in the book in lesser roles because this is a pretty dark and dangerous forest full of really nasty animals. So they make an appearance. Um, and then we've got the puppets that come across as zombies, which pays homage to going back further. And playing around with paranormal aspects and so on. It's a lot of fun. And the whole point of Hydra's Wake was really to just be a story about entertaining. So this story is all action. Um, the first chapter opens up to Rogue Whip waking up on the ground of his crash site. So... I mean, yeah, the first chapter, we take a moment to set the whole thing up, but once Lord Albert and his cronies show up at the mining camp, um, game on. Yeah, yeah, it's, I mean, it's, you know, just one ride after another, and, you know, but that's what's so fun about it, and, you know, I... Um, it's not, it's not a horror, um, by, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it's, it has some scary bits and it has some freaky bits, but for the most part, it is, it's a fun adventure type book. I almost said movie. Really? (laughs) (laughs) It's a, you know. It, it's a fun adventure type story. And, um, you know, I, I loved working on it and I loved getting to read it. Um, you know, I, I tell people, <clears throat> excuse me, <laughs> I tell people that one of my favorite parts of being a book editor is getting to read books before everybody else does. Um, because it makes me feel special and it makes me feel like I'm part of the in crowd that, you know, I get to read this book first, you know, kind of thing. And, um, you know, so getting to work on Hydra's Wake was, it was so much fun. And I, you know, got to read about all of these different things. And, you know, of course, with Hydra being one of my favorite creatures, you know, having that as, um, you know, just part of the story as well. And just the descriptions that you added into the book of just how massive this creature was, you know, and there's, there's one part in the book that, um, Rogue is, he's looking through, um, a window and I am not going to give any context or anything, but he's looking through a window because the, the ground had started shaking and like earthquake shaking. And so he's looking through this window and he sees the Hydra and the, the Hydra like fills up 
his entire view. But yet it's something like five miles away. And so just adding in that description and, and those comparisons through the action is, you know, one of those little tricks that authors are really good at, you know, just creating that scale and, you know, getting the, the reader to see in their mind just how massive this creature is. Um, with a <laughs> hi kitty cat tail. Um, and you know, so yeah, my, my cat's black too. He's so cute. Um, <laughs> he's, yeah. I'm about to lose my train of thought. Um, but you know, so what, what are some, I guess, tips regarding using that action and using what's going on in the story to create those those types of um, visualizations for the readers, what kind of tips can you offer other authors that maybe haven't tried it before or have and feel like they didn't do well? Um, what are some tips? Oh man, that uh, <laughs> that's a tough one. Um, it's funny, I when that particular scene came to mind, it was just, how do I convey the this to something that everybody would have a real life experience to? But at the same time, when you do comparisons in novels, um, like such and such is like X, you do have to be careful with that. So... I guess the best thing about it with Hydra's Wake is their society is similar enough to ours to where certain shared experiences can be conveyed. So it really comes down to what your world is and where you can put your reader directly into it with experience that we would have from our world to basically make it to where, oh, you're now in this new world in these new shoes, but it's not entirely sensationally new to you. So it's not like you're going in completely blind. Um, find ways to make that transition happen. And that's going to be different for everybody, but the simplicity of it is what would your reader know now that if you put them in your world, that your reader would be able to fit in in that aspect already without any new experience. So, and that's a tough thing to do. I don't do a whole lot of it in Hydra's Wake, but that is a moment where it was used to great effect. <laughs> Yeah, it um, it was a um, a really good way of you know just getting that reader into the story, and you know just you know there's so many times that you hear from um, well-established authors that you know they're like show don't tell show don't tell, and 
you know, that was, that was one of those times that that particular writing technique of show versus tell worked to great effect. Um, you know, because you can imagine that, you know, like in Jurassic Park, for example, the, the first one, the, the good one, you guys, <laughs> um, don't even get me started on Jurassic World. Just, just don't. Um, I, I can rant about that movie for like an hour. Um, but in Jurassic Park, the first one, when they're riding in that Jeep through the, the brontosaurus field and, you know, all of a sudden Alan is, he looks up and he sees the brontosaur and you, you know, all of a sudden you're behind him and you can see how tall the trees are on one side and you can see how tall the brontosaur is in comparison in relationship to that tree. And so it gives that sense of scale, but it's visual. And so when you're writing a book, it's a little bit more difficult to create that sense of scale. And I think that by doing it the way that you did, um, you know, I can imagine, okay, well, if that Hydra is five miles away and it's that big, then you can imagine, okay, well, if I were standing right next to it, I would be like this big. (laughs) I'd be like an inch tall. And, you know, so it just, it kind of gives you that, that mental relationship between the, the human size versus the Hydra size. And how they and how they work in relationship to each other. That way, when you get later on in the story and you start having all of these other various situations, you already know how big the Hydra is. You already know what, you know, just how difficult the what they're trying to do is. And I'm not going to give too much away. Um so it's, you know, it's a really good tool. And I, I think that um, the authors who use it, use it to great effect. Um, because it is a really good tool to use. And it is a really good um, Phillips head screwdriver to have <laughs> in your toolbox. <laughs> um, so one of the things that um, we got to talk about in the last episode, um, was how important you find editing, um, to be to your stories. And, you know, there's a lot of, um, a lot of authors that will not go through the editing process, um, because, they, they don't feel like they can afford it. Um, and their books tend to suffer for that. And their book sales tend to suffer for that. What, what are your thoughts on why the editing, editing process is so important and why it's such a good investment, even when it's not cheap? So the big thing about selling books is... 
that you need to have a quality professional product. I mean, you're asking money for imagination. So you want to have it uh, presented and polished in a way that is high quality and professional if you're going to expect it to do well. And with Hydra's Wake and Hydra Tower, they have absolutely phenomenal covers. They stop social media scrolls all the time. And that's what sells the book. Now, you can do that and skimp on the editing, but you're going to run into a problem where those books that you sell are going to come back. And editing makes it to where the story stays sold. And it advocates that your product is absolutely professional. So you want to make sure that you don't skimp on your cover because people judge covers like crazy. It's I, I'm, I'm a cover judger, yeah. <laughs> so if you have a visual that gets your book picked up, that's the first step. And if that leads to the sale of your book, awesome. It has done its job. But now it's the job of the story itself and the quality of your story that determines whether or not it stays sold. So you want to make sure that the editing you invest in does that job to where you don't see the returns. You don't have to give the money back because that's a pretty big thing. Yeah, because they're um, because from what I understand, um, Amazon specifically, when um, a book, when someone buys a book, you get the commission on it. When someone then returns the book, you are required to pay the full price of the book. Right? Is does that how it works, or Uh, that's how just pay back the commission? I believe at one point that's how it used to work, but it has changed to where you give back your royalties. So okay. that's a little better. It's not it great, is. but it's a, it's a little better. Yeah. I mean, you have to give the money back. And for most uh, self-published authors, it um, is very far from ideal. Well, and, yeah. um, and a few other uh, major booksellers have it to where there is a delay between when your book sells and when you see the royalties and the return window will usually be encompassed within that delay so that if a book does get returned um that process has been streamlined but um so it's not like you have to go into your wallet these days and give the money back. It'll just be taken out of the royalties that you would otherwise make. So the fact that they do that is a much smoother process now, which is better than it was before. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. I, you know, there were, there were so many times where, you know, I would be scrolling through Twitter or scrolling through Instagram and would see, you know, screenshots of authors that are like, you know, 
well, I'm not getting a royalty payment this month because I owe Amazon $6.51 because somebody returned the book. Um, and, you know, it just, it hurts my heart because, you know, I, I'm like, I have probably, I would say close to 700 books um, in my Kindle. And there are several of them. I, there's three I can count off off the top of my head. Um, Southern Book Club's Guide to Slaying Vampires, <laughs> Cabin at the End of the World, and Bookshop um, on the Corner. Um, those three books, while they were not horrible books, I did not enjoy them as much as other people did. Um, and I probably will never read it again, <laughs> but I'm not going to return it. I'm not going to send it, you know, I'm not going to send it back to Amazon and get my money back because regardless of how I felt about the book, I did still purchase the book. And, you know, when you go to Barnes and Noble, um, in person and you buy a paperback book, they, once you buy that book, it's yours. They're not going to take it back unless there's actually something wrong with it, like missing pages or, you know, and even then it's a very, very short period of time in which you can take that book back. And yep. so for, you know, for people to return Kindle books, um, just, you know, I used to see that all the time. I don't see it as much anymore, but I used to see it all the time. And it just, it breaks my heart because I'm like, just, it's, Kindle books are not that expensive, you guys. There, <laughs> really there is an update on that. Um, uh, I'm trying to find the policy because I did notice last month, actually, uh, there was a change to Amazon's return policy with regards to this. I think it has something to do with because um, they can tell, I guess, when you've read a certain percentage of the book. And they will prohibit you from returning it if you have read to that point. Yes. Right. Let me... Which I kind of like that. Yeah, it's that's a good policy. I, I'm... I mean, I'm biased, so I completely agree with it. I mean, the, the whole point of writing a book and doing your best to create this quality product, the whole point is to get people to read your book, to get people to hopefully share your book and, you know, take advantage of that super awesome word of mouth um, marketing, uh, you know, self-published authors depend on word of mouth marketing. You know, you guys, you can have the, the best cover in the world and both covers for your books are whew, awesome. Um, and in my, it was so funny because in my review that I wrote on my website, that's probably the first thing that I mentioned was, who boy, you guys, okay, you got to check out this cover because this cover, you guys, seriously. And, you know, it was just, it's absolutely an incredible cover. And, you know, so you have this really great cover, then you have this really great blurb that gets people, 
involved a little bit into the story that they want to read more and they want to find out more. And, you know, then they get this, this quality story that you have paid and invested in quality editing for. Um, you know, the whole point of that is to hopefully get that to the word of mouth marketing point, you know, because you can spout all day long about how awesome your story is. And you can spout all day long about how, you know, these other reviews say that this book is awesome. And you can spout all day long about this cover, you guys, is amazing. But until you get other people talking about it, and until you get, you know, other people mentioning the book and, you know, other people telling their friends, okay, I just read this really cool creature feature book. You got to check it out because I think you'd like it. Um, you know, that's where authors and that's where that, that marketing really comes into play is being able to take advantage of that. So that you're not spending, you know, hundreds of dollars on, you know, Facebook ads or hundreds of dollars on Twitter ads or hundreds of dollars on, on website ads. You know, you're, you're getting all of that free marketing because you have created this quality product. Yeah. It's the biggest thing for it. I mean, marketing tools are getting far more expensive and DIYing it is a very difficult thing. Now, I did get lucky with, well, not really lucky, but I worked hard to make a Kickstarter happen for both Hydra's Wake, and I've got one going for Hydra Tower right now. Um, The Kickstarter I ran for Hydra's Wake gave me almost $3,000 to work with for advertising and marketing efforts, so... There are some resources. You wouldn't have been able to raise that much money if you didn't have a quality product. So, yeah. So, what, you know, other than, you know, having that um, super high quality cover and other than having, you know, really great editing, what are some ways that um, authors can work on making sure that they have that, that quality product? Maybe they don't have the time to set up a Kickstarter. Maybe they don't have the the advance budget to go in and get editing. What are some things that you think they could do themselves to improve the quality of their product? I mean, at that point, it becomes a game of how much time are you willing to invest in learning the craft of editing and obtain the skills in um, digital design to be able to do those things yourself. Um, Those methods are free. There are thousands of YouTube videos for doing it, but that becomes a major time sink. And while the skills are there and obtainable, um, it just comes down to how much time you're willing to personally invest in the project to bring it to life in the way that you would hope. Um, but it's a lot easier when you in find ways to invest the money into it to make that happen. Um, 
<clears throat> like Kickstarters or crowd, crowdfunding is one thing that I do strongly recommend simply because they don't take that much time to set up. It takes a little bit of time to maintain, but um, those are resources that are free to start. And when done correctly, they will get you the money that you need to polish your product. So um, there are resources available out there to make that kind of thing happen. And in terms of time spent to set it all up, um, doing things like that is a lot less time consuming than DIYing the skills to become a great editor in your own right to edit your own project. <laughs> so. Yeah, and you know, one of the one of the things that, you know, I have mentioned I don't even know how many times um anymore, but you know, one of the things that I have mentioned is do not ever be the only person to read your book before you publish, you know, have at least, I would say minimum three to five, um, other sets of eyeballs on your book, whether that's editing, whether that's beta reading, whether that's, um, your mom, um, it doesn't matter, but you know, those people, you know, once you become, super familiar with your story, you're going to start missing things. You know, you're going to start seeing the way that it should be, you know, that you yeah, want it to be. Yeah. You have blinders on and you just, there are some things that you just don't see, you know, you're going to miss that typo. You're going to miss that, um, that misplaced comma, you know, you're going to miss those things. And it's, it's so funny. Um, I have a really great example of that. My friend Gabe, I just finished his book. Um, sorry, Gabe, I didn't actually message you to tell you that I finished your book. Um, but because uh, I know he's, I know he's been completely itching to find out what I thought of it. Um, it's not in a genre that I typically read. It's, um, but it was really, really, really good, and I really, really, really enjoyed it. And. Um, but there, there was a, a spot in the book that um, <clears throat> the Gabe meant to use the word um, word, and instead it was the word world, that extra L. <clears throat> and so I, you know, and I'm not going to give any context to where it was in the book or anything like that. But I took, I was reading on my Kindle and I took a screenshot of it and I emailed it to myself, saved it to my phone and I sent him that screenshot. And, you know, I'm like, you know, I figured you would want to know. And he was just like, oh man, I missed it. <laughs> and, you know, and that's, and gave us somebody that one, he is an editor himself Two, he has had alpha readers, beta readers, editors, critique partners, you know, multiple, multiple people read his book and he still missed one word, one miss, one tiny little letter in one word. So, um, you know, just imagine if, 
Gabe were the only person to ever read his book before he hit publish. Yeah. You know, you can just imagine he's going to be so familiar with that story that, you know, yeah, he had multiple people and yeah, multiple people missed it. But, you know, just compound that by, you know, 10, 15, 25, however many people. Um, and it's even more possible to miss those things. So that's my opinion on it. You know, that is um, where I stand on why you should have editing, why you should have proofreading, why you should have critique partners, why you should have beta readers. Um, you know, because if you want people to buy your book and if you want people to enjoy your book and you want people to um, push you into that super awesome word of mouth space, then you being the only person to ever read your book is a mistake. And it's it's a bad idea. And you're sitting there nodding along. Um, people can't see you. So <laughs> I figured I'd, I'd let them know um, that you are nodding. You are agreeing with me. Yep. Um, so what, um, if people wanted to, um, reach out to you and, um, get some feedback on how to set up either a Kickstarter or a GoFundMe or, um, you know, fundraising of, of any sort like that, uh, how can they reach you? So I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. I'm all over the place on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, Tumblr, Mastodon, Hive. Um, and then, of course, there are my websites, hydraswake.com. Um, hydratower.com will be up and running soon. So I'm pretty easy to find. <laughs> okay. Um, can you... Um send me all of those links uh, so that yeah. I can get them added to the show notes. And um, so people can come hang out, come find you yep. and um, maybe get some, get some advice. Um, I think you had said um, in the, um, the last episode that you have a degree in business management. Is that, so, is that correct? Or what is, what is that degree in? <laughs> It's pretty close to the truth. Um, I actually studied a lot for just the entrepreneurship areas to start my own business. I don't really have a degree in it, but I studied okay. enough to be able to know a little more than most on how to do it right. So. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I can't remember if you said you had studied business or if you had a degree or, or anything like that. So, um, but yeah, self, self-taught entrepreneur, totally fine. Um, I'm the same way. Um, most of what I've learned, um, for running the picky bookworm has been through podcasts and through websites and <laughs> through all of, you know, all of that and, you know, just learning what I can, where I can, so that, you know, I can be as successful as I can. Um, because that's, you know, that's the goal is, you know, there's some authors that they're totally fine keeping, um, their writing as a, as a side hustle and as a, a hobby for lack of a better word. Um, they don't want to make it full time, which is the only reason I refer to it as a hobby. 
Um, I am not disparaging the amount of work involved. Not. I promise <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are other authors that they would love to see their work become popular enough and their sales become high enough that they can make it a full-time job. And, you know, they would be able to write every day. And so it's, you know, learning where you can and learning from those who have done it before and learning from those who have done it successfully. You know, you, um, you have managed to sell, um, I think in 2022, you sold what over a thousand copies. Yeah. Right now I'm pretty close to 1.3 thousand sales. So sweet. Um, and you know, my friend Sabrina has sold, um, I think 10, 10,000. Um, so it's, you know, just learning from those who, who have figured it out and learning from those who, you know, have those tips that they can share is, you know, just amazing. So, um, highly recommend it. Um, I will be sure to include all of your links in the show notes, uh, so that people can come uh, message you. I hope you're not inundated <laughs> with oh, no. questions. Um, it's all but, good. you know, I, I know that there will be people out there um, that, you know, will have the occasional question. Um, and if you have to start charging by the hour, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's, actually, it's funny. Um, earlier today, I put a post up on Twitter that explained a good bit of my experience with Kickstarter and the things that you need to keep in mind going into it. And you know what? I'll briefly touch up on that while I'm here. So Kickstarter is a crowdfunding site where you offer rewards for people to back your project. They, it's free to start, free to run, and it's all or nothing. So if your project reaches its goal, you get the money. If it does not reach the goal, you can try again. You have to run your Kickstarter before your product is available to the public. So for authors, that means your Kickstarter has to end before your release day. So that's a big thing to keep in mind. Um, but uh, aside from that, um, a lot of people on Kickstarter like to see campaigns that explain that what the goals are. Like my Kickstarters are to run marketing and advertising funds. I set the limit the initial goal at 500 bucks um and the hydra tower <laughs> campaign uh actually did that in its first hour <laughs> oh that's cool yeah i'm still like my head's in the clouds still from that it's been a few days now um i did not think that was going to happen to me of all people but it did and um like you know it's all those people that read hydra's wake i mean come on oh yeah like (laughs) on my end i can see the backer list and a lot of the names from hydra's wake are on that and it's like okay i've got a solid following now (laughs) um but yeah uh the kickstarter is also nice because Amazon will allow you to put your ebook on pre-order. So running a Kickstarter 
acts as a pseudo way to let people pre-order your paperback or hardcover and get some cool stuff while they're at it. Oh, excuse me. So for Hydra Tower, um, every paperback, every hardcover that I offer is going to be signed. They will come with bookmarks. And I've got a few premium tiers where you get swag bags of all sorts of really fun Hydra Tower merchandise. And I've got three high-end rewards where I've done some really special things. <laughs> I'll leave those for the Kickstarter campaign itself. But um, the thing about running Kickstarters with the rewards is you have to keep in mind a few things. The cost of the materials to you is probably the biggest one. And that means buying the stuff to give to your backers, paying for the shipping, buying the shipping materials. And like if you put your paperback up on Kickstarter for $10 and your author copy costs $5 from Amazon, then in order for you to have anything left over to use, you need to make sure your shipping is less than $5. So you want to make sure that you do a little bit of math to figure out, okay, the paperback is $4.91. The box that I have is $0.33. And media mail to send that item is uh, $3.85. So... Things of that nature you just want to be aware of and put the math together in your head of. Um, the paperback on my Kickstarter, I think, is 15 or 20 or something like that. Um, and that markup is so that I actually get to keep some of that funding at the end of it to be able to use for the intended purpose of this whole thing, yeah. which is... Uh, <laughs> market and advertise my book. Right. So you have to be a little more business-minded when running a Kickstarter, but there are a lot of people out there who back all of these projects. Um, And publishing projects are pretty common to get funded through if the book is already written because there are authors all over Kickstarter that offer some really great stuff. Like me, I'm offering metal bookmarks, uh, lanyards, drawstring bags, ceramic mugs, uh, custom bookends with the Hydra Tower art, and um, actually got Alehorn uh, custom tankards. So that'll be pretty awesome. Those haven't quite arrived, so I don't have one to show yet. But that's no, okay. Yeah. It, it's pretty cool stuff. So definitely something that as an author, it's free to start. It's free to try. And if it succeeds, then that's money that you did not have before. Right. It is a resource that you do not want to overlook. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we are um, a little bit over time, actually. <laughs> um, so um, we do need to say goodbye. 
But this has been an absolute blast. This has been super informative. I hope that all of you listeners out there um, have enjoyed today's episode. Daniel, thank you so much for <clears throat> for coming and chatting with me today. Um, I don't foresee any issues, um, <laughs> technological or otherwise. So um, I think we'll be able to actually get this up and ready um, and posted later today. So if you will um, send me those links to your socials and your websites, um, I can get those added. Yep. Um, other than that, I, I appreciate your coming and, and chatting with me today. It was a blast. Yeah. And I hope you feel better soon. Thank you. Thank you a lot. I will talk to you later. Okay. Bye.